Welcome on this chilly Sunday morning. We are in a series called The Remarkable Power of Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the devil after the dove, so please open your Bibles or access your device to Mark chapter 1, verse 4. While you're finding that, let me remind you that we started our series on Revelation Wednesday night in here. We call it Webb's Wednesday Evening Bible Study. Starts at 6, ends at 6.30. And if you haven't gotten a book, there's some in the foyer. And uh, hope to see you here next Wednesday night, 6 o'clock right here. Today we're going to be talking about the baptism of Jesus, talking about the identification of Jesus, talking about the temptation of Jesus. You know, when it comes to baptizing, I, I've been pastoring for over 45 years, and I've baptized thousands of people, and I baptize them in just almost any place you can imagine. I mean, I've done it in creeks and rivers and lakes and ponds and swim pools, and uh, God willing, next month I'll be baptizing again in the Jordan River. Uh, at Green Acres, uh, when we built our new worship center, we put in it, in the baptistry, sort of a, a seat, a platform, so that a large people can be easily baptized, or if they're uh, kind of too old, you know, you don't have to lean them all the way back. Because I remember when I was a young pastor, I was baptizing a guy that was a pretty large dude. He was maybe um, two Twinkies over 300. And he was excited about getting baptized, and I was excited to baptize him. Only problem is, when I laid him over, I had no trouble getting him under the water, trust me. But then when it came time to bring him up out of the water, I didn't have the strength to do it. Of course, I didn't want the guy to drown right there and go straight to heaven, so I, I, I did something not very smart. I reached over with my other arm to try to pull him up, and that's when I lost my balance and fell over. And my feet, and so all, all you saw was water splashing out of the baptistry, four, four legs, four arms. And I, I, like a lot of preachers back then, I wanted to get back into the pulpit as quick as I could. So I had a shirt and tie and, and a waiter's on. It's hard to walk with waiters full of water, trust me. So, so I had to take off the waiters before I walked out of the baptistry. Fortunately, though, I always kept a spare outfit in my office, and so I changed quickly, went in there. And when I walked into the platform, all the congregation applauded me for my, for my athletic baptism that day. Fortunately, the baptism of Jesus went pretty smooth, and we're going to read about it here. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 4, you're welcome to stand with me as we read this portion of the Word of God. We're going to cover some material we were in last Sunday just to get a running start. John, that is John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you, plunge, submerge you, immerse you in the life of God, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus, now the star comes on the scene, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove 
And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately, remember I said that's the key word in the book of Mark. That little word means straightway, immediately, quickly. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can uh, look into the life of Jesus and see what he said and what he did, and it even applies to our lives today because we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. So a simple message today, we're going to look at three episodes in the life of Jesus and see how that makes practical application to our lives in 2022. Episode number one, Jesus was baptized as an example to us. You see, we talked last week about John the Baptist, baptism for repentance. Repent and be baptized, confess your sins. Well, if there was one person that ever walked on planet Earth who didn't need to be baptized, guess who? That was Jesus, right? Because the Bible said he never sinned. The Bible says he was tempted like we are in every point, yet he never sinned. So, so why did John baptize Jesus if it was a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins? I think we see the clue over in Matthew's account. So look at Matthew 3.14. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. That's probably true. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what, what was Jesus saying there? He's basically saying, you know what? It's the right thing to do now. Why? Because Jesus knew that there were going to be millions of people, including you and me, who would want to follow Christ in baptism, and we can identify with Jesus because he was baptized. And so Jesus launched his ministry by being baptized in the Jordan River, and then just before he ascended into heaven, he gave this great commission, go into all the world, the ethnos, all the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is important in the New Testament. The word baptize or baptism occurs 81 times, so it's pretty important. So I want to teach you this morning three things that the Bible teaches about baptism. I'm not talking about Baptist baptism because we don't really need to have any Baptist beliefs. We need to have Bible beliefs, amen. Let me teach you what the Bible teaches about New Testament believers' baptism. Number one, first thing to do has to do with is the sequence. What is the sequence that one should be baptized? It is this, believe and be baptized. Now, I say that because there may be some of you in this room, and chances are people watching on the screen, that when you were a child, when you were an infant, your parents had you christened or sprinkled as a baby. Now, I'm not fussing at you for that. You know why? Because you, could, you had no choice in the matter if that happened to you. Your parents chose for you. And I commend your parents for wanting to dedicate you to God. In fact, for many, many years at Green Acres, we still do it there, several times a year we would have parents with new, new babies come and we would have a family dedication where they dedicate themselves to God and they dedicate their children to God. We just don't use water and call it baptism. We call it family dedication. But if you were sprinkled as a baby, christened as a baby, 
you have not received Bible baptism. My mentor, Ray Sedman, writes this about infant baptism. He says, I will barely touch on the problem of infant baptism because you can't find a single verse in the New Testament which even suggests that it is proper. Baptism is an expression of faith by the individual. It cannot, therefore, be practiced by an infant who is incapable of expressing any faith of his own. Only the baptism of believers is authorized in the Bible. So how then did sprinkling begin and sprinkling of babies? How did that get started? Well, for the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians were, were persecuted, but every baptism that took place was by a teenager or an adult who was old enough to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. But something happened in 313 A.D. when the Roman emperor Constantine uh, claimed to become a Christian and he legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Now, some people say he, he Christianized paganism, but if you know what happened after that, really what actually happened was he paganized Christianity because he made it requirement for everybody to be a Christian and everybody to be baptized. And you see, when, when they would send out their Roman legions, the troops to battle, he didn't want them to die and go, go to hell without Christian baptism. So he appointed priests who would take water that they would dedicate as holy water, and then they would just sprinkle it over the troops. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then to become more efficient, they said, Let's, we don't want a little baby to die and go to hell. So let's just sprinkle those little babies as soon as they're born. That's where it came from. And there's no, not one occurrence of infant baptism sprinkling before the year, before the fourth century. So that's the proper sequence. And it's an important thing for a step for a Christian to take. I really always loved vacation Bible school, one of my favorite times of the year, because we always had older children who had become believers during vacation Bible school and then we'd have a special VBS baptism. I remember a few years ago, I had a little third grade guy come up to me with his parents and to speak to me. He said he wanted to tell me something. And you could tell his parents had kind of rehearsed with him what they wanted him to say. But he got a little bit confused. He said, I'm so excited. I've asked Jesus into my heart. And next Sunday, I'm going to get advertised. <laughs> and his parents corrected him. I said, no, no, no. He just said something profound. Because that's what baptism really is. It is you advertising to the world that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is when we make our profession of faith. So that's the correct sequence. What about the meaning of baptism? It is a symbol of salvation. Of course, in the Catholic Church, being baptized or sprinkled as an infant is a sacrament, which means it's something that saves you. And if you have some Church of Christ friends, they believe the same thing about that. They believe that baptism is essential for salvation, but we don't believe that. We believe that the sequence is you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's when you are regenerated. That's when you're born again. And then as an act of obedience and a public profession of faith, that's when you follow the Lord by being baptized. So that is a powerful symbol. And sometimes people say, well, doesn't that just really take away the meaning of it just to say that it is only a symbol listen symbols are important whether it is the bread and the cup for the lord's supper those are important symbols and think about the american flag that's just a piece of cloth isn't it with stars and stripes on it yes it is but what does it represent it represents our nation 
And I don't want anybody burning that flag. I don't want anybody dragging that flag through the mud. And did you know every time that we stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, we are identifying with all other Americans. We're identifying with our nation. And when you follow Jesus in baptism, you are identifying yourself with Jesus. So what does it symbolize? It symbolizes a death, a burial, and a resurrection. It symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But it also symbolizes our death, burial, and resurrection. That's why when someone is baptized, we quote Romans 6. It says, buried with him in baptism, you are raised to walk in a brand new life. Well, so who died? Well, you did. The old you, the person you were before you came to Christ, that person is dead and buried, and, and your sins are buried. And when you come up out of the water, it's a picture of the new person that you are in Christ Jesus. So that's the correct meaning. Number three, what about the method? What is the Bible method of baptism? It is always, always, always by immersion. The word baptize was not a religious word. In the Greek language, in the Greek culture, the word baptize was used when women would go down to the river and take soap and immerse their clothes. It was called, they baptized their clothes. When cloth merchants would take a piece of cloth, dip it in a dye to change the color of it, they would be baptizing that cloth. And if you're a lawyer, you'll probably appreciate this. There are, uh, there are records of a man being convicted and executed for murder because he baptized somebody in a river. <laughs> in other words, he drowned somebody in the river, and that was the word they used. They were baptized. So if that's what the word means, you may be asking, why do so many of these churches now still sprinkle or, or, or pour water? Why don't they do what the Bible says? Well, did you know there never was an English word baptized until 1611? And let me tell you what happened. In 1609, King James I said that we need a Bible that everybody can read in English. And they wrote it in the high English, Elizabethan English, sounding like Shakespeare's plays. And so he hired 50 of the top scholars in, in Great Britain. They were Hebrew scholars, Aramaic scholars, Greek scholars. Back then, a classical education for everybody included learning Latin and Greek. And so here they're translating along, and they come to the word baptize, and so they're going to put the word immerse, dip, plunge. But then they face a quandary. King James, their king, would cut their heads off if they wrote that. You know why? He was an Anglican. By then, the Church of England had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church, and King James had never been dipped, immersed. What happened to him? When he was a baby, he was sprinkled. And so if they put the word immerse off with their heads, and they couldn't translate the word sprinkled because all the other people that knew Greek knew that there's a totally different word in, in Greek that means sprinkled. So they just kind of copped out, and they just transliterated the word. There was never an English word until six, baptism or baptized until 1611. It appeared in the King James Bible, and, and it meant to dip. Oh, by the way, that's not the only word in English that's transliterated from Greek. There, there are quite a few. In fact, the word telephone, that, that's a Greek word that means distant sound. We just say telephone. Acrobat means high walk. 
So there's quite a few words in English that are just transliterated from the Greek, but that's one that has caused confusion. Now, you know, there was a Protestant Reformation. Uh, In 1517, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and so they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformers, but that's one thing they didn't reform. They they went to sola scriptura, Bible only, sola fide, faith only, and sola gratis, only grace, but they didn't stop sprinkling babies. Well, the Lutherans did, by the way. You know what? They, they, they at least took it to dipping, but then they, were, they would dip babies. In, in a church in Wittenberg, there's a picture of these guys standing around a wooden tub, and they have a little baby that they're going to dip the whole baby in. At least they're dipping, but they still didn't do it for believers only. But that's what Bible baptism is. And you have to baptize where there's water. In fact, look at John 3, 23. Now, John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because there was plenty of water. And people were constantly coming to be baptized in the Jordan. So the Jordan River, <laughs> it's, a, it's an important river. It's mighty and significant, but it's not mighty in size. It's a pretty narrow river at most parts. There are a lot of places you couldn't dip anybody in it. But there are several places, but not many, where you could actually go in and dip somebody under the water. So that's how Jesus was baptized. Don't, don't believe all of those Renaissance paintings of Jesus standing in the river with John like pouring some water on his head. And thank God the chosen, which is a great uh, de- depiction of the life of Christ, he was baptized by being immersed. So here's the question for you before we leave this point. Have you been baptized by immersion since you believed? If you have, great. You've had Bible baptism. If you haven't, we'll be glad to talk to you about scheduling your Christian baptism. Let's move on to the second episode. Jesus was identified by a voice from heaven. The Bible says that when he came up out of the water, there was, heaven was torn open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. It doesn't say it was a dove, but like a dove. I mean, have you ever seen a dove fly when it's getting ready to land? Some of you guys kill them. <laughs> but, every year and eat them. But when a dove lands, it just kind of flutters a little bit and just sort of softly lands. That's, that's how the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. And then there was a voice. This is my son. I love him. I am well pleased with him. That's important for you to know who Jesus is, but it's also important for you to know who you are. True story, back when George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, was president, he was visiting a nursing home. And there in the hall of the nursing home, he saw an elderly man in a wheelchair, and he walked up to him, and President Bush said, Sir, do you know who I am? Do you know my name? And the guy looked at him and said, uh, I don't, but if you go to the nurse, she can tell you who you are. <laughs> it's important to know who Jesus is. You know, our Muslim friends love Jesus. You know that, right? Because Esau is a great prophet for them. They believe Esau was born of the Virgin Mary. They believe Esau, Jesus, lived a sinless life and performed miracles. They don't believe he went to the cross or was resurrected. They think he, was, he ascended into heaven, bodily to heaven, but they don't believe in the cross. But they love Jesus, and that's, that's a real good platform if you have Muslim friends. And just let's talk, let's talk about Jesus. Who was he? Well, here in this passage of Scripture, he is identified by a voice from heaven that can only be God. This is my son. I love him. He's my beloved son. And I'm well pleased with him. You know, that wasn't the first time that 
are the only time that God spoke from heaven. Also, at the transfiguration, when Jesus took, Matthew, took James and John and Peter up on the mountain, and he was talking to Elijah and Moses, the voice from heaven came again. And it said this time, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then there's a third occurrence in the Bible when God spoke audibly about Jesus, and it was just before the cross. Look at John 12, 28. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. I know who I am, but this voice came for you. You know, to me, I'm amazed that even when people heard a voice from heaven, some of them were so skeptical, they said, well, that wasn't a voice from heaven. That was just, that was thunder or an angel. But God himself identified Jesus as his son. Now, what's the practical takeaway for this? Well, for all of you who are parents or grandparents, here is advice to parents. Tell your kids often that you love them and that you're proud of them. Because think about it. Who was the perfect father? God the Father. What did he say about Jesus? He said, this is my beloved son. I love him. And I'm well pleased with him. I'm proud of him. So that's a lesson to all of us who are parents and grandparents. We need to tell our children and our grandchildren often, I love you and I'm proud of you. Some of you parents may be saying, well, you know what? I missed my chance. My, my kids are grown. It's not too late. How old was Jesus here? He was 30 years old. And his daddy was telling him, I love you and I'm proud of you. So for years, I have not sent a text to my two daughters without ending the text with, I love you and I'm so proud of you. So start doing that. People want to hear that. Tell them what you're, why you're proud of them. I love you and I'm proud of you. So that's the identification. That's the baptism identification. Finally, let's talk about the temptation of Jesus. Number three, Jesus was tempted to show us how to resist Satan. The Bible says immediately he was driven from the Jordan River into the wilderness where he was fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted by Satan. That's why I call this the devil after the dove, because you know what I've discovered? I've discovered sometimes in the Christian life, after you've had a great spiritual high, immediately after that, you'll experience a great spiritual challenge. Now, I didn't make up this term. My friend and mentor, Adrian Rogers, is the one that originated. Here's what he said. Be prepared for the devil after the dove. As soon as God opens the windows of heaven to bless us, the devil will open the doors of hell to blast us. Now, let's think about who Jesus was. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was omnipotent. There was nothing he couldn't have done. He was tired. He was hungered. And the devil, Lucifer, the fallen angel, comes to tempt him. Now, don't you believe that had Jesus so chosen, he could have snapped his holy fingers and poof, Satan would have been just gone. Gone forever. Do you believe that? I do. Don't you think Jesus could have just flicked the old devil and the next thing you knew he's on the backside of Pluto over there? Yeah, he could have done that. But here is a strategy against Satan. As God, Jesus could have destroyed Satan. But as a man, he defeated him 
by quoting scripture. Why? Once again, to give us an example on how to resist the devil. So, sure, Jesus was hungry. Oh, Lucifer came up and said, well, if you, if you are the son of God, those rocks already look like loaves of bread. Just turn one of them into bread. And Jesus used the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, according to Hebrews 4.12. He pulled out the sword and he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil tipped him again. He said, I know you want to be popular. You want a crowd to follow you. So let's just start it off right. Let's go over here to Jerusalem. And you get up on the pinnacle of the temple, which was the southeastern corner of the wall around the temple, and jump down into the Kidron Valley. Always people there. And the Bible says the angels will come and they'll catch you. If you do that, you'll be automatically, instantly popular. Jesus pulled out the sword of the Spirit again. The first scripture was from Deuteronomy 8. This was from Deuteronomy 6. He said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil tempted him again. He showed him a vision of all the rich civilizations of the world. And he said, all this is mine. Well, by the way, it wasn't. He's a liar, okay? He didn't own that. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. All this is mine, Jesus, if you will just bow down and worship me. Jesus, again, pulled out the sword of the Spirit, quoted Deuteronomy 6 again. He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. So, folks, when you are tempted by the devil, use the same strategy. Quote the word of God to the devil. Now, if Jesus could defeat the devil with three obscure scriptures from Deuteronomy, what do you think you and I can do with Romans 8, John 15, Philippians 4? And we have to deal with temptation. I've been preaching for 52 years now, but I still struggle with temptation. Do any of you ever struggle with temptation? Raise your hand if you struggle with temptation. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar, and you gave in to that temptation right there. (laughs) Sometimes people say, Pastor, I can't believe all these temptations, these terrible thoughts that go through my head. Hey, folks, thoughts that go through your head are not sin. I mean, the devil, he, he tries to make us think terrible things. He can't control your mind, but he can make circumstances and and that happen or, or direct your eyes towards something. You know, the devil's temptation is like, have you ever been walking through a, a mall and you smell a Cinnabon? You sort of are drawn toward it. But then when you, but when you find the devil's, what he's offering, it's not Cinnabon, it's just a bunch of rocks, okay? But Billy Graham said one time about temptation, he said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. So some of these tempting thoughts, you can't keep them from passing through your mind, but you can sure keep them from being lodged there. And the way you do it is replace it with the Word of God, the Scriptures. That's why you need to memorize Scripture. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. Martin Luther, he always had trouble with the devil. The devil was real to him. In fact, after he was put on trial and found guilty of heresy and was to be imprisoned and executed, some of his friends in Germany rescued him and hid him at a place called Wartburg Castle. I've been there. I've even been in the room that was his study. And up on the wall of his study to this day, you can see 
this big ink blot from a time that Martin Luther was so mad at the devil, he took a jar of ink and slung it up against the wall. But he had some good advice on how we can resist the devil. Here's a quote from Martin Luther. When the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. The devil, seeing the nail prints in his hands and the pierced side, takes flight immediately. So how do you resist temptation? When the devil comes knocking, just send Jesus and quote the word of God to resist temptation. So a number of years ago, we had a sportsman's banquet at our church, and the speaker was a guy who trained bird dogs. And he had a dog that he brought in that night that could do more tricks on his command than any dog I've ever seen. It was amazing. And for his last trick, this trainer took a piece of steak because we cooked out steaks that night. And he had a strip of steak, and he tossed it right in front of the bird dog and said, wait. And then he just kept talking. And then every now and then he'd say, wait. He just kept talking for a while. And you know that dog is right under his nose. He could smell that delicious steak. Wait. But I noticed the whole time while the man was talking, this dog had his eyes fixed on his master. He, he wasn't even looking at that steak. He was watching the master. And finally the man said, eat it. <laughs> he stuck it up. What's the key? When this crazy world all around you offers all the temptations, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Just keep your eyes on Jesus, the master. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to watch you and hear you, learn of you as you teach us how to live victorious lives. Lord, I just want to ask you to plant this word in our hearts, that you'd make us better parents, help us to identify you and identify with you, help us to use your strategy to resist temptation. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room or watching that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you put a desire right now in their heart to know you. And if you don't know the Lord with your head bowed and your eyes closed, why don't you just pray this prayer after me, but you mean it from your heart. Dear God, I admit I am a sinner. I can never earn heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Thank you for doing that to forgive my sins. Right now, Jesus, I receive you into my life. I'm putting my trust in you. And I will live for you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray.